Welcome to The Essential Sam Harris. This is Making Sense of Meditation and Eastern Spirituality. The goal of this series is to organize, compile, and juxtapose conversations hosted by Sam Harris into specific areas of interest. This is an ongoing effort to construct a coherent overview of Sam's perspectives and arguments, the various explorations and approaches to the topic, the relevant agreements and disagreements, and the pushbacks and evolving thoughts which his guests have advanced. The purpose of these compilations is not to provide a complete picture of any issue, but to entice you to go deeper into these subjects. Along the way, we'll point you to the full episodes with each featured guest, and at the conclusion, we'll offer some reading, listening, and watching suggestions, which range from fun and light to densely academic. One note to keep in mind for this series Sam has long argued for a unity of knowledge where the barriers between fields of study are viewed as largely unhelpful artifacts of unnecessarily partitioned thought. The pursuit of wisdom and reason in one area of study naturally bleeds into, and greatly affects, others. You'll hear plenty of crossover into other topics as these dives into the archives unfold. And your thinking about a particular topic may shift as you realize its contingent relationships with others. In this topic, you'll hear the natural overlap with theories of identity and the self, consciousness, belief and unbelief, and death. So, get ready. Let's make sense of meditation and Eastern spirituality. The topic of this compilation is arguably the one that is closest to Sam's heart, so it's only fitting that it serves as the conclusion to this series. There are at least 20 conversations in the Making Sense archive that could have been included here, and we'll be sure to point you to some of those in the final recommendations. Sam eventually launched a standalone platform completely dedicated to the practice of meditation and mindfulness called Waking Up. It goes without saying that we encourage you to check that out if any of this piques your interest. This particular compilation will be curated towards the meditation novice, or even the meditation skeptic, though fresh perspectives and revisits to the fundamentals are always valuable, even for a well-practiced listener who is already convinced by the practice. In fact, in many ways, so much of the entire practice of meditation is all about returning to the basic, apparent, obvious, and discoverable truths which are always available to access. In all of the concepts we'll be discussing, one is constantly rediscovering the hidden surface of an obvious truth. But once that surface is felt, one can plunge to new depths of exploration as the practices and techniques become more habitual and familiar. The whole idea of meditation strikes some as intimidating and daunting, or even pretentious and pseudo-religious. Some of Sam's listeners who are initially attracted to his political and moral analysis and enjoy his sharp critiques of religious dogma can be a bit baffled by his interest in and promotion of this practice. Deep investigations of meditation force one to dance around vaguely spiritual concepts that often flirt with insights espoused within compromised religious traditions. And more recently, the public arena of meditation has become saturated with a confusing amount of hype and fluff about 
productivity and efficiency, goal-obsessed versions of mindfulness, all of which Sam goes to great lengths to distinguish himself from. What we hope you'll hear in this compilation is an easy, open, and sometimes humorous invitation. We hope to provide an admittedly overly simplified presentation of the concepts and techniques that Sam insists carry with them profound insights and opportunities to pay closer attention to the experience of experience itself. Sam's book, Waking Up, is his most relevant outline of an atheistic approach to the mystery of the mind and the secular foundations for a meditative practice. Our compilation on consciousness is the most natural companion to this episode. In that compilation, you'll hear Sam insist that the one thing that you certainly have is your mind. So why not get to know it? And better yet, why not learn some techniques to understand and train it? As it was put by one teacher whom Sam admires and whom you'll get to know in these conversations, you needn't have happened, but you did happen. You occurred. So the first motive for looking at this is curiosity. And I say it's pretty chicken-hearted, pretty unenterprising to live and die without ever looking to see who is doing that. What a challenge. What an opportunity. One important note up front. The common image of sitting with crossed legs and eyes closed while focusing on the breath, that's just one particular method of meditation, and it may not be the one that suits you best. There are thousands of ways to meditate that prescribe very different techniques, from walking with a certain intention, to sitting with open eyes, to focusing on a specific object in vision, hearing, or sensation, or even focusing on an idea, to chanting, to dancing, to committing to silent observation of the mind for days, weeks, or years. So with the caveat that any summary of meditation would be inadequate, we'll introduce two popular approaches which attempt to usher you to the same place by taking divergent routes. One path is called Dzogchen, and the other is called Vipassana. These are words you'll hear frequently in the following conversations, along with other Sanskrit words which come from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, like Anapanasati, which is the focusing on the breath, or Rigpa, or Trekcho, which are both about resting in a state of open awareness. Don't worry too much about these foreign-sounding words, and please forgive my pronunciations, because the concepts they teach are graspable and universal. But somewhat unfortunately, many of the concepts in meditation are ineffable. The word choices by which we describe something like an experience of open, clear awareness are poetic and subjective, though the descriptions tend to overlap in interesting ways across time and culture. It's sometimes taught that when one is in a state of deep meditation, the very moment that a name, label, or a set of conceptual words creep into the mind and attempt to package and deliver the experience as a coded linguistic expression, even to oneself, is the very moment that one knows they have lost touch with the pure experience itself. And the instinct to try to contain and cling to the experience is an ironic signal of failure and disconnection. 
Words and descriptions in this topic are something akin to trying to grasp and present a handful of smoke. So with the caveats of inadequate language and incomplete knowledge in mind, let's forge ahead. Vipassana tends to use techniques which focus on an object, oftentimes the breath, though it can be body scanning, or even an idea like compassion or love, which is taken as an object of focus. The meditation attempts to groom the mind to notice how attention tends to drift away from ideas, seemingly on its own. There are frequent reminders in Vipassana to gently return one's attention back to the object when you notice that it has slipped. You'll hear several of Sam's guests relay the common experience of frustration and surprise with just how difficult this seemingly simple-sounding task can be. The techniques of Dzogchen attempt to point the mind away from objects and directly towards the recognition of the openness of the mind and the illusory nature of thoughts and perceptions which appear within it. The idea is to rest in a state of non-conceptual awareness. It's difficult to speak about a destination or goal for meditation, as we've already noted, but the place that each of these paths would hopefully lead one to is something like the dissolution of the idea of the self or the continual identification with thoughts and concepts. This place where the notion of self drops out from the picture of consciousness is expressed in many different ways that you'll hear in these conversations. Sometimes it's nothingness or emptiness or non-being or transparency. But in this first clip, you'll hear it expressed as something like non-occurrence or zeroness. And you'll hear how a particular word was what thrust the meditator towards this sudden realization. The guest is Joseph Goldstein, who is Sam's longtime friend and meditation teacher. He's appeared on Making Sense three times and frequents the Waking Up app as well. In this clip, you'll hear him and Sam go back to their first encounters with meditation. To attest to just how important this subject is to Sam, this is from episode four of Making Sense, and actually was the first ever episode of the podcast which featured a recorded conversation. It was called The Path and the Goal. Before we get into esoterica, Tell us a little bit about how you got into meditation and how you how this became your life's work. Well, I was uh, studying philosophy at uh, Columbia University in New York as an undergraduate. And by the time my senior year came around, I was really anxious just to get out and see the world. And this was in 1965, and it was uh, just uh, soon after the Peace Corps was established. Uh, so that seemed to me a, a really good vehicle for getting out and and seeing new parts of the world. So I applied to the Peace Corps, and I actually applied to go to East Africa. But uh, as uh, fate or karma or accident or whatever, whatever the conditions may be, uh, happened, they sent me to Thailand, which turned out to be a very fortunate happening. Uh, because while I was in Thailand, I had my first contact really with Buddhism and Buddhist teachings and meditation. Soon after I started teaching in Bangkok, I was teaching English. 
Uh, I started going to discussion group at the Marble Temple, which was quite a famous temple mm. in Bangkok. And there were some Western monks who were leading the discussion, kind of introducing Westerners you know, to some of the Buddhist ideas and concepts. Of course, having just graduated college in philosophy, I went there full of my own ideas about things, and I would be asking so many questions in the group that people would stop coming. You know, it was like, I think we've all been in groups like that. Right. Uh, and we've probably both been that you, person. You were the insufferable <laughs> blowhard. Who, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so finally, this one monk says, you know, Joseph, I think you ought to meditate. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anybody who meditated. I was mm. 21, 22 years old in the Far East. It was all extremely exotic to me. And it just seemed like a, a really interesting thing to do. So he gave me some initial instruction, and I also began a little reading. There's one classic book called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, mm -hmm. uh, which laid out the basic methodology. Uh, and so I gathered kind of all the sitting paraphernalia, cushions and this and that, you know, to sit. And the very first time I set my alarm clock for five minutes, mm -hmm. you know, because I didn't want to oversit. But something quite amazing happened in that first five minutes. It, and it really uh, changed the whole course of my life. So, you, so the first time you sat, you actually connected with the practice and realized it was something worth well, looking into. Well, what I realized, it wasn't that I had any great enlightenment experience, but what I realized was that there was a way to look into the mind mm. as well as looking out through it. And my whole life, I had just been looking out, right. out of my mind, yeah. rather than looking into it. So it was like a turning in place. Yeah. And that, just that was so extraordinary to me. You know, I got so excited, I started inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, Arguably the most narcissistic <laughs> thing you could possibly do. <laughs> it was, well, it, more charitably, it was naive. Uh, it, it really came out of this tremendous enthusiasm for, you know, what I felt I was discovering. Right. Uh, obviously, they didn't come back very, very often. Yeah. It made for a poor viewing experience. <laughs> Very poor. Uh, but that was the beginning. You know, and then, you know, over the course of my time in the Peace Corps, I just, you know, I extended time past five minutes a little bit. But still. Uh, so, so how long did it take for you to actually go on intensive retreat? Oh, at the end of my Peace Corps stay, I had an experience. Somebody was reading from... A Tibetan text friend was reading. So at this point, you had been meditating for what a, a year? Or? Yeah, maybe a year, but very but just, intermittently, just an hour a day or something. Uh, probably not even, right? You know, but I was dabbling. Yeah, I, I was just dabbling in it, but and reading and going to some classes, mm -hmm. you know, trying to find out more about it. But just at the end of my Peace Corps stay, before I left for home, I had a really transformative experience listening to somebody read from a Tibetan text. Mm -hmm. And it just was an experience of opening to an understanding of the mind. And kind of in classical Buddhist terms, they talk about the unborn or the unformed, or using words mm -hmm. like that to describe the freest aspect of the mind. You know, so something happened. What the hell happened? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody 
somebody was reading this text, a Tibetan text, uh, and that addition, that was a very early translation of it, right. which a translation which has now been so so a faulty translation, a faulty tra- a faulty yeah. translation <laughs> by Evans Wentz, yeah, the called book the book of the, of the, the Tibetan yeah. book of the Great Liberation. Right. Uh, there have since been much more careful translations of it, right, and very powerful ones, but. Even in that faulty translations, have the new translations revised the very line you found so useful? No. Okay. No. no. All right. So let's so right. so back up. You've got you've got this this uh, faulty Victorian translation of the <laughs> Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, and you have a friend who's reading it out loud to you. Right. And then at one point in the reading, just on the word "unborn," hmm. the mind open to that experience right let's say more say more about that you hear this word unborn you're, you're looking into your mind all the while what changes so it's it's a momentary experience that has the power of a lightning bolt so it's a, a unique moment of the mind going from being aware of different things arising moment after moment, you know, like sights and sounds and the breath and the mind itself. And then upon hearing the word unborn, and it's, it's very hard to describe, but it was, if you think literally of what that word means, unborn, it's, it's the experience of non-occurrence. Mm. So, Right, being mm. born is something occurring. It's so moment after moment, experience is being born and dying, being born and mm. dying, moment after moment. Unborn is a moment of non-occurrence, which broke that stream of continual birth, of continual occurrence, and the the metaphor or simile, one of those. Mm. Uh, Right after, right after that moment, I described it to myself as zero. It was the experience of zero. Right. So, so the experience is was, however difficult it is to characterize, it entailed the loss of ordinary sensory experience. You're yes. no longer seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Right. So the so the lights went out. In the, some sense. The lights went out in some sense, but there was a knowing of that. Right. Right. And this, this gets into another, you know, a deeper discussion of that experience, which we might yeah. have yeah. later. And so so, it, is, so it, it, it is the knowing of a reality. That doesn't entail ordinary sensory perception. Right. And, it's zero. Right. It's like a, re- a z- rebooting of, of the hard drive. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things that became so apparent is that zero is not nothing. Right. Zero is a powerful number. Yeah. And perhaps the most powerful number. And the fruit of the fruit of that experience was the immediate understanding and realization of the selflessness of this whole process we call life. That there's no there's no one to whom it's happening.
Goldstein's later appearances on Making Sense in episodes 15 and 63 get further into the minutiae of meditation and also respond to some audience questions, including some relevant ones on the moral, or immoral as it were, behavior of some meditation practitioners. Goldstein's Insight Meditation Society is also a great resource to investigate for those interested in attending a retreat. The passage which struck Goldstein so deeply from the Tibetan book of the Great Liberation, which his friend was reading aloud, was this one. The self-originated clear light, eternally unborn, is a parentless babe of wisdom. Wondrous is this, being non-created, it is natural wisdom. Wondrous is this, not having known birth, it knows not death. That unborn feeling of zero, but not nothingness, is obviously a bit difficult to grasp or convey in words. But as we mentioned in the introduction, it's a concept which resurfaces constantly in discussions of meditation and mind. The next guest is going to take another run at that idea, but through a remarkably simple set of experiments, which he will invite you to participate in. If you recall Goldstein's final line, that there is no one to whom life is happening. That is an expression of the selflessness of consciousness, and we're going to try to stay there, but with a slightly different emphasis. Our next guest would like you to take a look at yourself. As he often repeats, he's in the business of trying to help people take a look at who they really, really are. And if you do grasp this perspective, you are very likely to discover that you are something very different than what the world has been telling you you are. He means this in a deceptively straightforward way. Richard Lang is our guest, but he's coming to us as a devoted student of Douglas Harding, whom he studied extensively with and has also written a biography about. Lang has continued to spread Harding's teachings and messages, making them more accessible to a wider audience. In this clip, he'll tell you a little about Harding's life and give you a tour of his central insight, which is profound in its obviousness. And that is this one. You have no head. Now, don't be too alarmed. If you go check in a mirror, you'll most likely see a head there. And we're quite sure that if you ask the people around you to confirm that you have a head, they'll do so probably after giving you a pretty perplexed look. But what Harding and now Lang will ask you to do is try to take real account of the fact that your head actually does not exist in your universe. You will never see it directly, and you are forced to take everyone's word or the information of a mirror as evidence of its existence. There is an artistic sketch referenced in this clip drawn by the Austrian physicist and philosopher Ernst Mach, which provided the aha moment for Harding's headless insight. We'll describe the sketch now, given the audible medium of this podcast. The sketch shows Mach's first-person point of view with his right eye closed while reclining on his chair in his office. His dark mustache frames the bottom of the sketch. The right side is the ridge of his nose, and the top is his brow bone. His torso and legs extend away from this point of view while a pen rests in his right hand. 
the walls and window of his office appear beyond his shoes. If you take a moment and consider where you are right now, and you close one eye, and you attempt to draw exactly what you see, you will not be drawing your head. If you recall Goldstein's line about looking inward rather than outward for the first time in his life during his fateful five-minute meditation, this next method of introspection is very nearly an exact flipping of that sentence to pay close attention and wonder exactly what we are looking outward from. If this strikes you as silly or mundane, don't worry. Sam will do you a favor and play skeptic after Richard Lang attempts to give you a tour of what came to be known as the Headless Way. This is Richard Lang from episode 181, The Illusory Self. What's so interesting about Douglas is that he came up with truly novel practices and analogies and framings and, and ways of looking mm -hmm. into awareness. It's his own methodology, which really is very effective for so many people. But before we get mm -hmm. there, let's just talk about Douglas, the man, for, for a moment. Mm -hmm. You've published a, essentially a, a graphic biography, mm -hmm. The Man with No Head. So maybe you can just give us a, a brief tour of Douglas's yes. you know, spiritual biography. Yes. Well, he grew up in an exclusive Plymouth Brethren, which was a very strict Christian group. And his father was very keen, very dedicated, a very small group in the east of England. And they used to, you know, have prayers twice a day and four times on Sundays and God knows what. But at 21, he left. And his reason for leaving was that, well, you might be right but I am not going to accept that you're right just because you say you are. I want to find out for myself. And it hurt his father. His father cut off from him. And um, anyway, Douglas went his own way, but he had been profoundly affected by his father. During the First World War, the Germans bombed the town where they were. It was a seaside town. And his father refused to go into the cinema to seek sh shelter but got the whole family on their knees praying while the bombs came over or the shells came over. And he said, I'm going to put my faith in God. Well, Douglas rejected the sort of kind of, you know, the peripherals of the religion, but he was affected by this deep faith somehow. And this sense of the importance of meaning of, yeah, something like that. Anyway, at 21, he left, and then he started inquiring. He, he, he was training and then working as an architect in London. And he started inquiring into what he was. And I think he often used to say, the basic thing that amazes me is that I am. You know, I mean, just how amazing just to be. I mean, I might not be. And while I am, I'd like to find out who I am, what I am. And he'd already rejected what the Plymouth Brethren was saying. So at this point, he wasn't going to take on another dogma. He was going to look for himself. And he started really by recognizing that he was made of layers, depending on where the observer was. So, you know, six feet he was human, but closer to his cells. And then further away, he was a city or a species. And this sort of enabled him to 
sort of crossed the boundary between his skin and the rest of the world. And he began developing this feeling that he was this view that he was like an onion with layers. And of course, when you realize that, you must ask what's at the center. And he went to India with his wife, and, and they, they had two children there, and the war broke out. Anyway, he, in about 1943, he'd come to the position that he realized he was made of layers, and that the nearer you got to the center, the less there was. So it made sense that he was kind of no thing at the center, but he, he, he couldn't seem to experience that. It was just a guess. And then he was reading a book where there was an article or a section by Ernst Mach, physicist. And Mark, it's a fairly well-known picture, drew a self-portrait, not of what he looked like at six feet, but of what he looked like from his own point of view, which, of course, is headless. And when Douglas saw this, and he was probably sitting in the Imperial Library or somewhere in Calcutta, he suddenly thought, that's it. And it was not a big wow, he used to say. It was just like a cool recognition. Ah, that's what I am at zero. That's what I am. Ah, you see. Okay, so let's, um, let's jump into the, the experience and, and, and do our best to introduce people to it. Hmm. I guess we should say that, unfortunately, many of the experiments that Douglas devised are highly visual. And we can talk a little bit about the primacy of vision as a as a context in which to to see this experience and I mean, this is the kind of thing that it can be recognized with your eyes closed too but you know many of us have found that that's a a, a subtler thing to recognize so i guess with that limitation on i mean just knowing that we can give people instructions that they do with their open eyes that that, that reference vision as the primary sense but we just have to recognize that, you know, this is going out in pure audio form. So we have to, it all has to be intelligible. So with that proviso, sure. how would you instruct, how do you instruct someone who is contemplating this for the first time? Yes. Well, I, I, I could uh, just take you and them or whatever yeah. through just a, a little process that includes closed eyes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being aware that we're just audio here. Okay, well, as you say, it, 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 a lot of the experiments are visual. And you can just notice you can't see your face now. But a very simple, direct thing to do, which I think is worth doing, is to actually point. So if the listener is willing to play a bit, I would ask you just to get uh, your index finger of your right hand or something and point out, so you've actually got to do it, because it's just uh, making clear the arrow of attention is out. So you might be pointing at the table or a, a vase or a window, and you're looking along your finger, and there's a thing. Now what I want you to do is just turn your finger 180 degrees around to point back at the place you're looking out of, and notice what you see there or what you don't see. Because I don't see anything right now. I don't see my face, don't see my eyes, don't see any shape or movement or anything. So I'm pointing, I would say I'm pointing at my no face, at uh, this space here, this stillness, this silence even. 
And this is, outward and inward is a two-way pointing thing. So that's a, a, a kind of useful gesture to bear in mind. Mm. So just starting visually, I said, well, you can't see your face. I'd say the, the inward pointing arrow of attention is pointing at nothing, space. Now, this is a nonverbal experience, so I'm putting words on it. I'm absolutely convinced everyone is aware, you know, can see this because you can't see your head. Instead, you see the world. But you may choose different words from me, so that we accept that. So I'd just like you first to notice several things about the view out from this space. That it's a sort of oval view, the field of view, and it fades out all the way around. So whatever you're looking at is most in focus. And then when you get to the edge, as it were, it fades out, and then you can see nothing around it. And I take that seriously. It's sort of hanging in nowhere. The view, there's nothing above it, nothing below it, nothing this side of it. It's just hanging in space. And it's single. So if you look at any two objects, you say, well, that one's bigger than that. You can compare the size. It's relative. I say, now, look at the whole view. How big is it? And there isn't a second one to compare it with. So I can't say how big it is. And so the two things to notice here, well, two or three. One, it's single, the view out. I might hear about your view, but I don't experience it. In my own experience, like you say, in the app, as a matter of experience, there's just one view. It fades out into nothing. It's not inside anything. I can't say how big it is. Now, close your eyes. See? Now, so you've got a kind of darkness, which, again, is in your app. As you say, it's kind of lit up. It, you're, it's not just nothing. There's something there. Let's call it darkness. It's not uniform darkness. Now, how big is that darkness? Well, there isn't a second one to compare it with. It's single, so I can't say. And is it inside anything? Well, just like the visual view, mm -mm, no, I could say it's in space or awareness or consciousness. Now I move my attention to sounds, and I hear this voice coming and going, and other sounds. So if I use the, the same kind of words, the field of sound, like the field of vision, field, that's all the sounds. How big is it? Well, there isn't a second one to compare it with. And is it inside anything? No, or I say it's in silence. So these sounds are coming out of the silence, going back in. And I, I, I think you see here, developing the first person language. I am the space in which the darkness is happening. I am the silence in which the sounds are happening. Now I move my attention to body sensations. And uh, if I put aside my memory, my sort of map, and just go by the sensation. See, lots of different sensations. Now. How big is the whole field of sensation? Well, there isn't a second one to compare it with. It's single. See, I can't say how big it is. And is it inside anything? Mm-mm. In this awareness. Now, I identify with my body sensations often enough. So if, if I say that uh, I can't say how big the field of sensation is, I can say, I can't say how big I am. I'm not inside anything. Yes, I'm single, I'm alone. 
And then finally, we can move our attention to thoughts and feelings. So think of a number, there's a thought, you see, and uh, think of the face of a friend and the affection you feel, feelings, see, or, or anything, problem and anxiety that comes up, challenge you've got. Now, how big is, is this very complicated field of mind? Well, I don't experience a second one to compare it with, see. And where is it? Well, I think as the Zen people say, it's, it's in no mind, or my thoughts, like my voice, are coming out of nowhere and disappearing again. And this is who I am, this, this open space, and this is who we all are, you see. So I don't know what you're thinking, Sam, or what you're feeling, but I'm convinced you're, you're the same indivisible space containing your particular view, you see. So now when we open our eyes, well, what really changes? The space is full of colors and shapes, magic. But one is, one is still this single space that contains everything. So that's a kind, that's, that's pointing out the obvious. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was a great tour. So let, let's start with the, the place we started with the, the open-eyed considerations of pointing at one's own face. Mm. and noticing that there's nothing to see. Mm. And I want to just try to channel the, the skepticism that um, some mm. listeners may feel. And uh, this, this may be the kind of thing you, you've heard a lot, but mm. and if you can think of other challenges that don't occur to me, feel free to, to raise them. But mm. I can imagine someone saying, well, of course I can't see my face. I, I can't see my own eyes. But I know they're there, right? And so, mm. what's the what's the significance of this? You seem to be suggesting that there's something profound about the eye not being able to see itself. But I know I have a head. I know I have a face. I know I have eyes in the middle of it. What's the point of this? Yes, I, I think there are different ways of approaching this, and I'm really not in the business of trying to persuade or convince anyone for a start. I'm just happy to be this, and if people are interested, I'll respond. But if they are interested, I say, well, you, you say that my head is here, you see my eyes, and I know you can see it from, say, three feet or six feet away. But what I am depends on the range, you, you know, on where you are looking from. And if you come up to me, then you'll see my, uh, you see my face, but come closer, you'll see a patch of skin and come even closer if you've got the right instruments, and you'll find cells, molecules, atoms, particles, almost nothing. And I'm right at zero, and I say, well, absolutely nothing here, but I'm aware and full of everything. So I say, well, of course I've got a head, I've got eyes, but it's a matter of where I keep them. And I keep them out there in the mirror, and I keep them in other people at a range there. I need them, but they're not central. Now, obviously, this is a very different way of appreciating what one is, but it does actually fit with what science says. And what we've done, you see, is accept what everyone tells us about who we are from their point of view and say, well, you must know more about what I am than I do. And what, what I'm suggesting is my point of view, which is headless, eyeless, tongueless, you know, without anything here, is valid here. 
And when I touch my head, you say, well, look, I, you can touch your head. I say, well, for you, I'm touching my head. But for me, my hands disappear. And there are sensations in awareness. And this is taking it as it's given. And if someone doesn't, you know, go along with that, well, there's nothing I can do, really. And, you know, uh, th this does make sense. But w whether someone says yes, no, or maybe to it is, is rather mysterious to me. Mm -hmm. Lang and Harding both offer other fun, visually-based experiments involving paper tubes, wristwatches, and other props, which are available online. In our recommendations section of this episode, we'll be sure to point you in the right direction. Pun intended. The novel brand of open-eye meditation, which Harding first outlined, is an almost deceptively literal and unfiltered observation of the conscious experience. Some find it to be a powerful on-ramp to other forms of meditation and exploration. The headless way, as it has come to be affectionately known by its devotees, is yet another meditative effort to rediscover an intimate engagement with our experience through a radically aware sense of no self. It's agnostic towards a strict materialist theory of the emergence of consciousness, but it upholds the inarguable occurrence of mind itself an object which must be deciphered with different scientific methods than the seemingly material objects which appear within it. As Harding was fond of asking the audience in his lectures, have you ever in your life been face to face with anyone? Hasn't it been face to space where you are? What are you looking out of now? Two tiny apertures and a meatball? Or is it really, really open there? But now, we're going to listen in on a clip with someone who is quite interested in the mechanics of that meatball, Thomas Metzinger. Metzinger is a longtime meditator himself, and he's been studying the details of how our brains operate to construct a model of the self, and how that operation can be played with, analyzed, and, of course, with focused meditation and or psychedelic drugs, interrupted and broken. One oft-repeated experiment that you may have heard of is the rubber hand experiment. This was first devised and performed by Matthew Botvinnik in 1998. In it, the participant sits at a table with their arms resting in front of them. One of their arms is then hidden from their view behind a screen or a curtain, and a realistic-looking rubber arm and hand is laid next to them on the inside of the curtain, within their view. It extends toward their shoulder, appearing from their first-person point of view to be somewhere close to where their arm should be. As they watch the rubber hand, the researcher simultaneously strokes it and the participant's real hand with a paintbrush. After just a few minutes, the participant begins to feel as if the rubber hand was their own and has mapped a sort of self-ownership over the space it occupies and the sensations which correlate with activity in it. Then, the researcher calmly picks up a hammer and whacks the rubber hand, just to test how strong the startle response is. We fully recommend checking out some of the wildly amusing videos of this very YouTube-friendly science experiment. But Thomas Metzinger took the rubber hand experiment a step further by using virtual reality. 
He wanted to see if he could actually get participants to project their sense of self and all of its concomitant startle responses into avatars, which were offset from their physical location by just a few apparent feet. This, amongst other experiments and philosophical inquiries, led him to formulate a theory of how our brains construct a model of self, which is intimately tied to a model of physical space. This is Thomas Metzinger from episode 96, The Science of Consciousness. We're going to jump into a moment where Sam is responding to an answer that Metzinger had just given regarding different conceptions of the dissolution of self and keep an ear out for an analogous description of conscious experience, which coheres nicely with the headless insight that came to us from Harding and Lang. So, so Thomas, I, I want to backtrack to something you said before. You made a, a distinction between the cognitive self and other things you might mean by self. And, and so when I'm talking about the dissolution of the sense of self that comes with meditation or can come with meditation, you said that, it, well, if that's just the self you mean, well, then, of course, you can, you can experience selflessness, but there's, it, it runs quite a bit deeper than that. What do you mean? How are you, how are you demarcating the cognitive self from, from other forms? Well, so I have this theory. It's called the Self-Model Theory of Subjectivity. There's a 700-page unreadable book called Being No One with MIT Press. It, it's not, not unreadable. It's, it's a, if, if you are a student of philosophy, it's a wonderful book to read. Don't and I recommend lie it. to your listeners. It's very thick, however. <laughs> so um, what I'm saying is, is that you have no self, but that you have a self-model active in in your brain, a naturally evolved representational structure, and that is transparent. Transparent means that you cannot experience it as a representation. That is, right now, as you are listening to me and to Sam, you are identifying yourself with the content of your own self-model, and you're completely glued into it as an organism. So what I've been interested in is, is this phenomenology of identification. How is the attachment created? The attachment to a thought, the attachment to an effective state, the attachment to a body. And in the last 30 years, I've treated this theory as a research program and filled in many different layers of the human self model in my research. Now, the last four papers I've written were on mind wandering and uh, the cognitive self model. Um, so the structure that I've developed a theory about what it actually means to fall into this illusion of being a mental agent, a thinker of thoughts. But before this, I've worked for many years on embodiment. And I've asked the question, which is maybe even more important, what is actually the most simple form of selfhood? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this, Sam. What is the simplest form? of having this selfie feeling. And I think if, say, you're sitting in meditation and you're in an emotionally neutral state and there is complete quietness in your mind, there's a seeing out of emptiness, there's still this body sitting there. So I think there is an elementary sense of selfhood um, that we call spatial-temporal self-location and that we've tried to manipulate in virtual reality experiments and done a lot of empirical work on. So even with the completely quiet mind, there is still bodily 
self-identification and there is a deep bodily sense of self. And the question is, what forms of meditation or what hallucinogens actually dissolve this, this bodily here and now, that's much more fundamental. Of course, the thinker of thoughts can go. If that is enough to say the self is dissolved, I think that's a pretty accessible thing that many people can have. It's a great question. What is the most rudimentary form of self? And for me, I think it is a matter of feeling like a locus of attention or really just attention. I mean, it's like in the Tibetan tradition, or at least in the Dzogchen tradition, in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about dualistic fixation, you know, kind of subject-object perception. And this, in my experience, can persist even if the feeling of the body disappears. So if you're in meditation and your body just vanishes, your eyes are closed, say, and you know, most people, if they close their eyes now, they still, they still will feel all of the perceptual signs that they have a body. They'll feel the heaviness of their body in space, or they'll feel tingling and, or pressure or temperature. But in various states of meditation, especially when you get very concentrated, you can lose the feeling of the body. Certainly the sense of boundary dissolves and you're no longer, there's no shape at all to your body and there's no pain or, or sensations. So one thing that supports the way you're going is um, very interesting research from dream research. There is a rare subcategory of dreams, bodiless dreams. And what we find is there are dreams where you just experience yourself as an extensionless point in space. But the interesting thing, just as you just said it, is the sense of self is stable and you can control your visual attention in the dream. So I think the most simple form of mental agency, way below um, symbolic thought, is actually this experience of controlling the focus of attention. That's a way of interaction. And in my last four papers, I've written a lot about this. And in meditation, I think, if you take the standard Bendy Hasenkamp model of Vipassana meditation, you alternate between mental action and let it go. So your mind wandering, phase one. Phase two, there's meta awareness. You suddenly realize, oh, I've lost it again. Then you act. Then you control your attention and go back to your breath. But then you have to do two more things. One is you have to let go of the subtle negative feeling of disappointment with yourself. I'm never going to learn this. this is, I'm just, I probably have a genetic deficit or something like this. And the other thing you have to let go is the sense, the sense of effort that was involved in bringing your attention back to the breath. And if you then can rest for a certain while in a non-fragmented state, in an effortless form of mindfulness, then you have no sense of self and you will be disrupted out of this by the next mind-wandering phase. This is this cycle is the usual cycle for the Vipassana meditator. And, and the interesting thing is that you you do just what you say. There is a sense of self. There's this the biggest problem in meditation is the meditator, as everybody knows. The person that has sat down wants a reward, has read interesting books by Sam Harris, and now 
there's this gold state, you know, and now it's trying to coax or manipulate him or herself into something that is rewarding. And that's, that's a form of suffering <laughs> and it's effortful. And I think you are actually very right. The most subtle form of selfhood on the non-bodily level is at what I call attentional agency in my writings. Um, the little experience of agency that is created when controlling your attention of, and of course in meditation that eventually has to go. You know, it has to go. It strikes me that identification with anything from the point of view of attention is fairly paradoxical. Like, how is it that we come to feel identical to a thought that has arisen? And, you know, we haven't seen it arise. I mean, let's say you don't know how to meditate. The default experience is to feel identical to the next, what, what is in fact an object in consciousness. It is, it is something that is being known from outside itself. Otherwise, you couldn't know it. Your, your consciousness or your attention couldn't be aware of it. You know, first it wasn't there and now it's there, whether it's an image or a piece of language in the mind. I mean, you say something, you know, let's say I say something that you don't agree with, and the voice in your head says, oh, that's not right, or, or no, he's made a mistake there. Or, yeah. and, and, and that feels like you, and yet it is just an appearance in consciousness. How do you think about identification? Well, it's, and it is a horrible source of fragmentation. I don't know if you've noticed this. There is this, if you let it be, there's this holistic quality of the wholeness of the moment. And the moment uh, this identification is there, there's this fragmentation of the space of consciousness in it. Uh, it starts to, you know, break apart into different elements. So I have a theory about it. Uh, it's called the cognitive affordance theory. Um, so there's this old, there's a, a neuroscientist in the U.S. is called Paul Chizek, and he has a wonderful theory saying that what the brain actually does is it navigates an affordance landscape. Now, affordances is an old Gibsonian theory from psychology, which says what you actually perceive is not the chair, but this is something I could sit on. And you don't perci perceive the glass of water, but this is something I could reach for. That is the actual content of the perception. And that there is a lot of neuroscientific data that actually supports that. Now, what I'm saying is that the mind-wandering network, which is becoming known in the brain right now, is actually... It, it's not entirely in overlap with the default mode network. I call it the DMN plus network, but we don't have to go into neuroscience here. So it actually sends, sets up an internal affordance landscape. That is the biological function. So all these thoughts that you see arise in meditation are actually proto-selves or proto-thoughts that are calling out to you, think me, pursue me. I am the last of my kind. I will never come again if you don't think me, right? So uh, the idea is, is that prefrontal cortex, executive areas latch onto elements 
from the default mode network that continuously compete in you, and then you identify. To put it differently, to give you an image, I think when I'm sitting in meditation and one thought after another comes, it is like a long line of children queuing up, standing in front of you, and every child raises his arm and it wants to be seen. And it wants to be briefly being hugged, else they won't go away. You know, they won't go away. And what you actually have to do is you have to notice every single one of these proto-thoughts and as it were, briefly press, pick them up, hold them to your chest and then let them go. And then the next child stands in line. And if you do this for a certain while, just observing them without an observer, in a quality of choiceless awareness, let them come, Let don't suppress them, no effort, just see them, then they also wither away. That's the classical wisdom, that is what human beings have discovered centuries ago. And if you do this for a certain while, after a couple of thousand children, there may be, <laughs> you know, a break in the line suddenly. So I think there is something like an affordance landscape in the brain. And these are affordances for inner action. It's not like the chair or the glass of water, but it's a cognitive or an affective state that says, feel me now, this memory, when she said to you, can we not just be friends? And then the next thought comes and says, think me, attach me. So there's this internal competition for attention. And if you can break that mode of latching onto, then you can break the identification and you can see that what people call conscious thought actually is, at least I claim that, a subpersonal process. It is something like your breath or your heartbeat. It's a local process in the brain and if you manage to see it without getting entangled in it, a completely new way of seeing emerges. But I guess you understand all of this um, very well. Hmm. Metzinger expounds on some of the neuroscience research, like the affordance landscape, in academic papers, which we'll suggest later. But the final thought about seeing the self-generating processes of the brain without getting entangled in them is where we're going to go with the next two clips, because that elaborate neurobiological analysis can trace to some robust analogies in the Buddhist meditative literature. We're going to shift towards perhaps less esoteric and vague outcomes of meditation, like the dissolution of self and connection with subjectless awareness, to a more pedestrian application of how something like mindfulness can help us. Judson Brewer is the guest. With a background in medicine, Brewer is particularly interested in the therapeutic applications of meditation, and in particular, how it can interrupt and break our patterns of addiction. He contends that mindfulness can help people quit smoking, conquer eating disorders, and address substance abuse. His expertise on the topic is demonstrated in his book, recently published at the time of his conversation with Sam. It's called the craving mind, from cigarettes to smartphones to love, why we get hooked, and how we can break bad habits. 
In this particular clip, he takes on a question about an addiction that we don't often consider. You'll also hear Brewer reference the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, which just so happens to be overseen by Joseph Goldstein, the guest from our first clip. This is Judson Brewer from episode 179, The Unquiet Mind. And perhaps the most subtle addiction here, and, and, and many people, again, will find it strange to be conjoining these concepts, addiction and thinking, but you mentioned one being addicted to thinking, and this is really something that you encounter when you, you, when you try to meditate, especially intensively on silent retreat, you just the automaticity of being lost in discursive thought, the fact that it's, it's our default state, despite our most heroic efforts to pay attention. In this case, we've you know, deranged our lives and, and gone into silence with the goal of paying attention moment to moment, and yet the thoughts don't stop. How do you think about thinking in light of this sort of addiction framing and, and just, I guess, the underlying mechanics of reward-based learning and processing? Well, I guess I should say, hi, my name is Judd. I'm a thinkaholic. <laughs> How many days sober do you have? <laughs> None. <laughs> I'm, I'm on day one. My, you know, I remember my first seven-day silent meditation retreat. This is when I was in medical school. And by day three, I was crying uncontrollably on the shoulder of the, treat man the retreat manager because I didn't think I could do this. I could pay attention to my breath, you know, because I... That's, that's always encouraging a psychiatrist <laughs> to weep openly on the shoulder of a stranger. <laughs> yes. So I think in terms of, you know, what I've seen from my own experience and also what I've now begun to understand scientifically, you know, and this is also is how mindfulness comes in, you know, there's this idea that we can just just control ourselves. And thinking is a great example of really not having any control because we can't just stop our thoughts. Uh, we might be able to create conditions where the mind is quiet, but if we just get up there and, you know, hold up the stop sign and say, okay, okay, thoughts, you know, take a break, they come at us, you know, like zombies, you know, yeah. and it becomes the thought apocalypse. So, you know, that's one, I think, in terms of addiction, I, I also remember being on, you know, I was on a month-long retreat, and it took me a full day or so to realize that I would be having these thoughts, and they'd be saying, oh, this is, this is a great experiment. If you do not write this down, you know, you will forget it, and then it'll be lost. And, and I would, you know, get up from the cushion, and then write it down, and then, you know, sit down again and then the next you know world's greatest thought came up and then do the same thing and i was like wait a minute this is this is my mind not just not wanting to meditate <laughs> yeah so i think in terms of the looking at this from an addictive perspective it might be helpful just to even think about what the general framework of reward based learning is cuz that can also explain where addiction can move, you know, not just from alcohol and the typical ones, but to even to thinking and views and things like this. So there's a, you know, there's a very simple framework that has three components, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. And this framework is set up to help us remember where food is and how to avoid danger. So basically, if you see food, that's the trigger. 
you eat the food, that's the behavior, and then your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, remember what you ate, where you found it, there's the reward, or quote-unquote reward. It's From a brain perspective, it's basically, it lays down context-dependent memory. Hmm. Same for avoiding danger. You see the danger, you run away, and then the reward is that you're, <laughs> you're alive to tell your buddies, don't go over there, that's kind of dangerous. So that's the basic framework for reward-based learning. Now, there are a couple of important components that really explain a lot of modern-day maladies that we don't quite understand with this. Reward-based learning is based on rewards, not on the behavior itself. And I mention that because in modern day, we try everything from dieting to trying to make our minds silent when we're meditating. But we use the brute force method where it's like, okay, just stop. That's what I was trying to do. I used to sweat through t-shirts in the middle of winter at this center, at the, the Insight Meditation Society up in Massachusetts, you know, where it's cold. Mm. <laughs> I'd sweat through t-shirts trying to force myself not to think and to just stay concentrated on my breath. Well, this is the same thing that people do when they're trying to lose weight and they use a traditional diet, which just says, you know, make sure you eat salad instead of cake. Well, you know, it makes sense. It's a, the formula is correct, but that's not how our minds work. So the reward-based learning reminds us that it's not the behavior, it's the reward, how rewarding a behavior is, and that's what's going to drive future behavior. And understanding this was really key, not only for my lab in developing, you know, app-based mindfulness training programs, for example, but also understanding the, the underlying neural mechanisms of what was going on. And also, personally, it really helped me <laughs> be able to, to pay attention to my breath or pay attention to an object of meditation rather than trying to force it. And it's also more the anticipation of reward than it is the actual landing on the object of desire, right? It's both, actually. So the dopamine fire is the first time we get a reward. And if it happens repeatedly, mm. that dopamine firing and that's that anticipation piece that, that feels like that dopamine firing shifts from receipt of reward to anticipation of reward. So it actually starts firing when we have a trigger or when we have a, a thought can be a trigger where we start thinking about getting that thing. It, it motivates us to get off the couch and go do that behavior. Because remember, this is all set up to motivate us to eat and to motivate us to run away from danger. So that anticipation piece says go do something. So you're saying that it's initially encoded by the actual reward, but if in future instances it starts prior to the reward, just when, when we're actually engaging the routine that would reliably deliver the reward? Yes. So for example, you know, the first, if I, and usually this has to do with unanticipated rewards. So if, if I'm, you know, walking down the street and suddenly I find, you know, a chocolate bar, that, you know, it's my favorite chocolate bar, my brain says, oh, wow, that was a surprise. And that, oh, wow, surprise says, oh, you just, you just won the chocolate lottery. And so then the next time I walk down that street, my brain will say, oh, I wonder if there's another chocolate bar there. And so the trigger of the context that walking down that right. street says, oh, go look for chocolate. In your book, you draw an analogy between the cycle of learning, which is in the behaviorist literature, going back to Skinner, what was called operant conditioning. There's an analogy to draw there between 
that mechanism and the Buddhist framing of dependent origination. I don't know if you want to unpack that for us. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So dependent origination is reportedly what the Buddha was contemplating on the night of his enlightenment. Now, that sounds kind of important. <laughs> hmm. this, this is what the dude was, was contemplating, and then he became awakened, and he, he became enlightened. So I worked with a Pali scholar, uh, Jake Davis, because as I was studying dependent origination personally, I was studying behavior change you know, professionally as an addiction psychiatrist. And we're starting to see the importance of operant conditioning, which is basically that reward-based learning cycle that I talked about. And we looked at the parallels, and it was striking how similar these two frameworks were. There were slight differences in terminology in terms of, you know, some language that the Buddhists were using and some language that the behaviorists were using. But basically, it was the same process. And what it suggested was that, you know, the Buddha had basically discovered what we now think of in modern day as, you know, reward-based learning before paper had even been invented, you know, and, and this discovery in modern day science, just to put it in perspective, was so huge that Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize in the year 2000, showing that this process is con evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. So a critically important concept, whether it was the Buddha becoming awakened or Eric Kandel getting his Nobel Prize, showing that this is a very, very fundamental learning process. So in the Buddhist framework, there's this capacity of the mind to notice the feeling valence of a stimulus. So you, you, you can notice whether something's pleasant or unpleasant and craving follows from that. There's craving and identification with it. And, um, you know, I think we now know something about the neural correlates of these processes. What does your work tell you about what the brain is doing when we're feeling desire for a stimulus and that desire is made actionable because there's no distance between, you know, attention and the desire itself? Yes. So we, why don't we start at the, the Vedana, the pleasant and unpleasant aspect. In Buddhist terms, uh, Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, or sometimes neutral. In operant conditioning or modern-day psychology terms, you know, pretty similar terms are used. You know, something feels pleasant, something feels unpleasant. And what, the, what both frameworks show is that whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, both of them lead to a craving. So we want more of the pleasant and we want less of the unpleasant. So you can think of an anti-craving or a, a aversion. You know, we have a craving and aversion. And then that leads in, in the Buddhist terminology to clinging or upadana, which can be also suggest a translation can be sustenance where we're we're fueling that fire of craving and by behaving we start to become identified with that behavior so if it's eating chocolate i can start to become identified with eating certain types of chocolate like dark chocolate versus milk chocolate or if i have a certain political propensity i could start becoming identified with a certain type of view or set of views where, you know, I am this versus not that. And the more we perform the behavior, whether it's eating chocolate or thinking, you know, this is the right view, the more we become identified with that. 
Now, interestingly, in ancient Buddhist terms, they called, they said that this cycle is perpetuated through ignorance. And then in modern day, I think of this as that cycle is perpetuated through, I, I'll, I use the term subjective bias. And so the term mm-hmm. ignorance and subjective bias, I would suggest are basically the same thing, meaning that we become biased based on our previous behavior. So we're not seeing the world clearly. We're seeing it through these lenses of our previous behavior. So if I see chocolate, I'm going to see it through the lenses of, oh, I like or I don't like that type of chocolate based on my previous behavior. So the subjective bias, the Buddhist would suggest, is ignorance because we're not actually seeing clearly. You know, and I, and I like the interpretation of the term vipassana, which literally means seeing clearly. It's as though we're taking off those subjective bias glasses. We're going to tiptoe gently through this part of the compilation, as some of this section treads closely to the outcome-driven obsessions of some kinds of mindfulness, which Sam is hesitant to recommend. In his exchange with Brewer, you heard a few references to behaviorism, This was a psychological perspective that was first outlined by B.F. Skinner in the 1930s and rode a popular academic wave to become the dominant perspective by the 1950s in psychology departments. Behaviorism places a significant emphasis on external stimuli and the environmental factors that influence behavior. It posits that behavior can be understood and predicted by examining the relationships between stimuli and responses. Behaviorists tended to focus on measurable and quantifiable aspects of behavior while disregarding subjective experiences, thoughts, and emotions which cannot be directly observed. This resulted in theories of reinforcement and punishment to understand and adjust human behavior. The tradition of behaviorism in psychology has largely been upended by a more sophisticated and holistic lens, usually referred to as cognitive science which incorporates more recent advances in neurobiology, psychology, computer science, and linguistics, while making room for the integrity of the mind to train itself, absent external rewards and punishments, though the discovery of the brain's internal chemical reward center was what Brewer was looking to examine and steer through the techniques of mindfulness. You heard Sam and Brewer draw analogies to Buddhist concepts like Vedana and Upadana, which are useful to tease out for a moment to again underline the repeated meditative effort to dissolve the self. The Upadana idea is especially useful here, as it describes the mind's tendency to grasp and hold on to experiences, objects, or ideas. The Buddhist story goes on to suggest that the attachment or identification arises from the craving for desirable experiences, which is called tana. And this craving is precisely what leads to suffering and the endless cycle of rebirth, which must be broken only by transcending this craving and thus attachment to self. That transcendence is called reaching the state of nirvana. If you're feeling a bit queasy about the religious terminology that seeped into the conversation, Don't worry, we have a clip coming up soon that hopefully helps quell your uneasiness. But the next clip stays on the subject of neurobiology and meditation. It features two researchers who try to take these subjective experiences 
and find measurable correlates in the brain. One might not be able to scan for nirvana in an MRI, but what would a brain look like that belonged to someone who was trying to achieve it? That is precisely the kind of thing that our next guest tried to find out. The clip is with Daniel Goleman and Richard Davidson, who are both experienced meditators themselves, but also hail from the world of rigorous academic research. They perform several experiments where they do things like put meditation masters in MRI machines and poke and prod at the brain to try to understand how their practices might actually alter brain physiology. When they spoke with Sam, they'd recently published a book entitled Altered Traits, which detailed many of those studies and their fascinating results, which revealed outcomes like greater activity in the left prefrontal cortex in experienced meditators, which is associated with positive emotions, and less activity in the right prefrontal cortex, which is associated with negative ones. They also found thicker prefrontal cortices in experienced meditators than non-meditators, as well as lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol. We're going to tap this conversation to get a brief review of some geographical and historical context of meditation as it relates to Eastern and Western traditions before Davidson draws the important distinction between what they call altered traits as opposed to altered states. This is Daniel Goleman and Richard Davidson from episode 111, The Science of Meditation. Briefly in your book, you talk about the, the Western precursors to meditation. You, you, you point out that the Greeks had a piece of this. Aristotle had, had a, a concept of human flourishing or eudaimonia, which many Greek philosophers thought about. And, and presumably there was some methodology there among the Stoics and, and the skeptics that was analogous to what we're calling meditation. But it really died out in Western philosophy, this, this idea that you could train the mind to be different than it is, and that the point of philosophy would be a, a life well-lived or, or a way of maximizing human well-being. And even in, then in psychology, you had people like William James try their hand at introspection, but it did peter out into some kind of cul-de-sac by virtue of just a, a lack of depth of experience and and a methodology. I think to some extent it's still that way today, uh, largely because there is still the presumption that the instrument of our mind that we use to interrogate uh, the nature of our mind uh, is relatively constant across people. And the notion that we can train our mind to uh, in some sense, polish the lens and have a more accurate observing apparatus is still something quite foreign to most people in the academy. And so, you know, it's always been interesting to reflect on uh, the project of looking at correlations between what's going on in the brain and what people report in their experience. Uh, and uh, uh, those correlations historically, while when you arrange the experimental situation in the right way, you can find positive correlations, they've never been particularly strong or overwhelming. 
And there's never really been the questioning of uh, the veridicality of the reports themselves and asking whether an individual who has trained his or her mind to clean lens, so to speak, might actually have better introspective access, uh, more accurate introspective access, and therefore the correlation between the reports of experience and what's going on in the brain potentially might be higher. And of course, this is the project of neurophenomenology that Francisco Varela, the, the biologist who co-founded the Mind and Life Institute, was really pushing. But in his life, which ended prematurely because he died of liver cancer, he really never saw the fruition of that dream. And we still haven't. But uh, I think that the, um, the framework is now in place to actually do this in a systematic way. I'm glad you mentioned Francisco. I, w- I want to just come back and, and speak about him a little bit more here. But just to not give people the wrong picture here, this notion of mental training is actually esoteric even in the East, even among Buddhists. I mean, most, most Buddhists don't meditate, and I've even met Buddhist monks who don't meditate. I, I, I've even met Western Buddhist monks, Westerners who have gone to Thailand and ordained and become monks who themselves didn't meditate. So me- meditation is esoteric as a practice, even among Buddhists. And, and, and that's just something that is especially strange in that context to me. But it's, it's not like everyone east of the Bosporus is spending half their day in meditation. Well, Sam, if I could say, uh, every, I think every major spiritual tradition, certainly in Eurasia, has had an esoteric center, which is training the mind. Now, in modern day, we talk about neuroplasticity. But, you know, in the second century, there were Christian monks in the desert of Egypt who were meditating, essentially, and they're doing the same thing a yogi uh, in India might be doing. And I think you're right that, you know, being a full-time meditator, uh, as occurs in some Asian cultures, but means you have to be a monk or a nun or a yogi. And even among (laughs) monks and nuns, not everybody will do that. It's a, it takes a particular kind of dedication, and it's, it's a narrow slice. Those are the people who go the deepest. Then there are the meditative traditions as they've been brought from Asia to the West, and a lot's been left behind, but it's accessible to a larger swath of people. And then there's the remove beyond that, where you've got, you know, make mindfulness. You have mindfulness of every kind in schools and businesses and so on. And, and that's a pretty thin experience, but it goes to scale. So I think that generally there's a trade-off between doing a little bit and lots of people doing it or doing it very intensely and very deeply. And every, you know, Sufis do a kind of meditation. Certainly there are Hindu meditations among yogis. There are, uh, the Christian tradition of meditation, by the way, was wiped out by the church as heresy. It's too bad because it ended that tradition in the West. But I think that what we were able to capture um, in looking at the meditative traditions that have had research done on them, it's interesting. It it was mostly Buddhist. It's mindfulness. It's Zen and Vipassana, which is another Buddhist method. And then Dzogchen or Mahamudra, uh, which is done by Tibetan yogis. And that's the bulk of the research so far. It's not an accident that you and and Western science in general has focused the collaboration between third-person scientific methods and first-person contemplative methods 
along Buddhist lines because there, there's so much in Buddhism that is is just perfectly designed for export into a, a secular context. It's not to say that Buddhism doesn't have its the literature on magic and and iconography and rituals that seems as religious as anything else, but there's a, a central strand there that is empirical in a way that doesn't presuppose any religiosity or any doctrines that need to be accepted on faith. And that's it's much harder to say that of these other contemplative traditions. And 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 on your point about the stamping out Christian esotericism as a heresy, that's I mean the, the problem has always been that the moment Christians become too contemplative, people like Meister Eckhart, they begin to sound like Buddhists. It's not an accident that the, the fires of the Inquisition had, had more or less reached Eckhart's door. Richie, give us this basic distinction that you make early in the book, which carries throughout it, between altered states and altered traits. Well, altered states refer to the experiences that we have sitting on the cushion or sitting on a chair when we're meditating. And the importance of meditation lies not really in the transitory experiences that we have when we're meditating, but it is in the impact of these practices in every nook and cranny of our everyday life. And this is what we refer to as altered traits. Altered traits are enduring changes that are consequences of our practice that uh, impact every aspect of our lives. Uh, and can be discerned in specific kinds of measures that are taken when we are not explicitly meditating. And so while much of the early work, including the early work from my own lab, was focused on the changes during the meditation period itself, what really counts in terms of the impact of these practices are the enduring changes. And so one of the central questions that we ask in the book is how do the more fleeting experiences that we have when we're practicing ultimately become more enduring changes that persist? And uh, one of the key answers to that is practice. Practice really makes a difference. And there is no substitute for practice. This is a question that we're we get so often, particularly in America, uh, how can we shorten the process? Are there strategies or technological aids that we can use to, to shorten the time? But I don't think uh, this is fundamentally different than learning any other kind of skill. It takes time to become a chess master. It takes time to learn to play the violin. It takes time to learn to be a collegiate athlete. In the same way, uh, practice is important here. You can sort of flip it and acknowledge that at every moment in your life, you are practicing something. You're, you're using your attention in a certain way. And for the most part, if you're, if you're like most people, you're using it in ways that lead to predictable sorts of dissatisfaction. I mean, you're, you're practicing a kind of meditation on all the things you want, all the things that make you anxious, and a kind of a, a perpetual distraction for which a method like mindfulness is put forward as an antidote. But as your mind is, your life becomes. And so you're, you're ingraining various tendencies and habits and neurophysiological states moment by moment, every moment of your life. 
Before we get to our final clip in this entire series, we're going to return to the topic that we mentioned earlier, the religious metaphysical claims of Buddhism. The clip we're about to hear comes from a conversation that Sam had with Robert Wright from episode 102, which is entitled, Is Buddhism True? Wright had recently published a book entitled, Why Buddhism is True, which has an admittedly provocative and bold title. In that book, Wright attempts to defend the claim using a similar method to the one you heard from Judson Brewer, by connecting concepts from Buddhist teachings to scientific ideas which ground themselves in evolutionary psychology. We're going to briefly tune in and observe how Sam's deep-seated contempt for religious institutions remains unwavering, even in light of his appreciation for meditation techniques which might stem from them. It's important to note that his endorsement of meditation doesn't extend to endorsing ungrounded religious philosophy, which can, and predictably does, lead to negative political and moral outcomes. I can imagine this title, Why Buddhism is True, gave you a little trepidation. Well, for more than one reason. I mean, first of all, it it just sounds uh, kind of unbearably uh, overbearing or something. I mean, I mean, you know, it's not it's not a humble title. There's that. There's like, who the hell are you to to say that after, you know, twenty five hundred years, you've come up with some, you know, some fresh insight into the question of uh the foundation of Buddhism's truth. Secondly, what are you doing using a word like true when there are even parts of Buddhist uh, philosophical tradition that cast doubt on whether that word has ultimate meaning? Third, what do you mean by Buddhism? You know, there are lots of different, you know, Buddhism, like like all spiritual and in a way philosophical traditions has evolved over time and developed these different branches. In some cases, the different branches have different ideas. So isn't it essentialist to act as if there's a single Buddhism? But I, I, you know, honestly, I'm willing to stand by it. I just think that until the advent of modern evolutionary psychology and some findings from experimental psychology uh, in general, it was, it was not possible to nail some of this stuff down the way you can now. So it's just uh, it, it's like for mo- for almost all of 2,500 years, it hasn't been possible to make the kind of argument I'm making. Yeah, well, there's one thing you bring that is pretty novel, maybe entirely novel. I don't know that I have encountered it anywhere, which is the, the piece that we'll talk about, the way in which evolutionary psychology really dovetails nicely with the truths as they can be gleaned from Buddhism or, or specifically the practice of meditation. I guess the other caveat here is that you are not endorsing any form of Buddhism. You're not arguing that rebirth is true or likely to be true. And I don't think you talk about it in the book, but I, I would imagine you're not any more of a fan of Buddhism as a reservoir of political insight than I am. I mean, if you look at societies that have been Buddhist historically, they have fairly unimpressive political fortunes. And the people who've argued that Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge was made possible in large part because of a Buddhist spirit of quietism that incubated that kind of extremism. I don't have a strong opinion about that, but it's just not obvious that Buddhism is the perfect operating system for a society to thrive politically or scientifically or in any other way. 
I guess people would want to remind us of what's happening in Myanmar right now and very strange career arc of Aung San Suu Kyi, who was everyone's favorite saint when she was under house arrest, and now she's not far from some you know bizarre angel of tribal vengeance in her not dealing responsibly with the Rohingya Muslim ethnic cleansing crisis. So it's not Buddhism you're really pushing for as a, any kind of ideology. It's, there are certain things in Buddhism, specifically mindfulness meditation and the truths about human experience that can be gleaned from it that you think give us a, um, an unusually good look at w- what it's like to be us and what the prospects are for bettering our lives by a, a deliberate use of attention. Would you, would you agree with that summary? I'd go a little I'd go a little further. I mean, I'd say, first of all, um, you're right. I'm not defending things commonly considered supernatural or or exotically metaphysical like rebirth. And I make that clear at the beginning, too. I'm talking about the naturalistic part of Buddhism, um, sometimes called secular Buddhism. I'm a little ambivalent about that phrase. But I would say I am defending well, not just radical claims. Well, f- well, first let me say, I think at the heart of Buddhism pretty broadly lies what I consider a kind of amazing claim, which is that the reason we suffer and the reason we make other people suffer is that we don't see the world clearly. And that's, I say it's an amazing claim because uh, it suggests that you can kill three birds with one stone. If you can learn to see the world more clearly, then you will suffer less. You will be a better person toward other people. That's, that's the idea. And I think that's found pretty broadly uh, across the Buddhist traditions. I, I certainly think you can locate that in both uh, Theravada and Mahayana. And if you ask what they mean by see the world clearly, again, in both traditions, there are some pretty radical claims about the extent to which we're deluded. I mean, the idea that the self doesn't exist, or even that our conception of the self is, is, is way, way off base. That's a radical claim. Um, the doctrine of so-called emptiness, that, that our perception of the world out there is deeply misleading. That's a radical claim when you look at what the claim is. And I'm actually defending those propositions to a pretty considerable um, extent. I mean, I would quickly say on the political issue, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's a whole subject we could get into. But I think the first thing people have to understand when they ask, well, wait a second, what about Myanmar is, you know, in Asia, lay Buddhists by and large don't meditate. Many monks don't meditate. So right away, if, if, you know, if my book is talking to a considerable extent about how meditation can clarify both our literal kind well, our, our, our vision of reality and our moral vision, that what's happening, the horrible things that are happening right now in that part of the world are not, you know, all that closely connected to that uh, claim. I guess, so just to summarize basically what you said about the point of contact between meditation or, or Buddhism and science, there is this alignment between what we can understand about ourselves, largely through evolution and to some degree through neuroscience, and how Buddhism describes the human condition. And understanding this both can give a, an impetus to a practice like meditation, and it can also both reduce our suffering and reduce the kind of suffering we produce for others. I think that second piece that you know, speaks to goodness and morality 
I feel like that connection, I feel like you've also acknowledged this somewhere in the book, that connection is less clear, which is to say there are people who seem at least to be very good meditators who aren't necessarily good people or haven't been good people. And so the, the connection between competence in meditation and being a good person is less direct than we might hope. And at least there's some evidence for that. It's certainly not automatic. Yeah. And I do, I do say that in the book. Um, and of course, you know, historically, uh, if you, you know, the Dharma, the, the Buddhist teachings have included a lot of uh, ethical instruction. The, the assumption seems not to have been uh, that if you just meditate, you'll automatically become a better person. That said, I think there's a correlation, some kind of probabilistic correlation. I mean, I think you see this even at the beginning of a meditative practice. If meditation, you know, if you're just doing what you don't even think of as Buddhist meditation and you call it mindfulness-based stress reduction and it calms you down a little, you'll probably be an easier person to get along with. And now we've reached the final clip of this series. It comes from episode 227, which was entitled Knowing the Mind. This episode was actually Sam being interviewed by the Belgian neuroscientist Stephen Loris. If there was a single episode to point a newcomer to that introduces Sam Harris well, this episode would be a good candidate. Throughout the episode, Sam answers questions which tie together his theories of morality, science, spirituality, meditation, and free will. If you've been listening to this series in the order of its release, you'll recognize references to concepts we explored in our consciousness, free will, death, existential threat, and morality compilations. In the early part of their conversation, which is not included here, Sam relays how he first got into meditation in his 20s. He had dropped out of school before eventually returning to pursue his PhD in neuroscience, largely due to the very questions and insights he pondered while deep in meditation. He also speaks about his first encounters with suffering and death when his best friend died when he was 13 years of age, and the grief of his father's death just four years later, when Sam was only 17. We're going to jump into the moment where Sam answers the question about why he meditates before we hear his response to a general question about how Sam coheres his views on meditation and spirituality with his dedication to a science-minded, atheistic approach to the deepest questions of reality and morality. This clip will serve as our finale before we return with our recommendations and resources and a final thank you. Here is Sam being interviewed by Stephen Loris from episode 227, Knowing the Mind. Can you say a little bit more why you continue to, to meditate and, and what are your current favorite exercises? Well, so, so the why, there are really two whys, which can be more or less important for people. I mean, the most common why, though, the why that is certainly advocated by the Buddhist tradition generally isn't really intellectual curiosity. It's much more a matter of overcoming suffering. We all feel unhappy to one or another degree in our lives. It's not to say that happiness doesn't come, but it also goes. 
you just can't stay joyful all the time. And if you just wait long enough, you'll feel frustrated and annoyed and angry and sad and fearful. And and just there's there's a, a lot of psychological pain that most of us experience fairly regularly. And meditation is offered as a as a method of having some fundamental insights into that process such that you don't keep suffering to the same degree and, and in all the ordinary ways. And it, it certainly holds out the promise that it might be possible, in some sense, not to suffer at all, to actually fully escape the logic by which you tend to make yourself miserable. And it has a lot to do with, with having insight into the the nature of thought itself and breaking one's identification with thought. So much of our psychological suffering is mediated by our thinking about the past and the future and in failing to connect with the present because we're thinking so much and, and not noticing that we're lost in thought. So yeah, my motivation, while it was always somewhat intellectual as well, it certainly was primarily about living a better life in the sense of, of just not suffering unnecessarily, I mean, just actually being happier, uh, recovering from the ordinary uh, collisions in life that cause psychological pain, you know, recovering more quickly. And uh, I think that, that certainly is the most common motivation. And, you know, for me, it, you know, both of these motivations continue. What's changed for me is that it's not so much a sense of practicing deliberately anymore. I mean, occasionally, you know, I, I do sit and meditate, but it's much more a sense of always practicing in that my moment-to-moment experience is always being punctuated by, you know, what I would call meditation. I mean, what, you know, what would qualify as meditation if I happen to be, you know, formally in a session of meditation, uh, which is to say a, a recognition of the way consciousness is. And it happens automatically. You know, it doesn't happen all the time. It's, you know, I, I, I spend a, an impressive amount of time still lost in thought, but when I'm not lost in thought, the thing that I become aware of is this non-duality of subject and object in consciousness. Figure and ground have flipped here a little bit, which is, in the beginning, I was trying to get to this experience, and meditation was a formal attempt to do that, Initially, I was it was haphazard, and then I was doing it more or less on demand. But now there's much more of a sense of this is the way consciousness is, and much of normal life is my inadvertently overlooking that. But when I'm when I no longer overlook it, you know, in any given moment, it is what you know what I'm restored to. It no longer feels like a practice of any kind. In fact, it's you know when one is actually you know really meditating, one isn't doing something. One is doing less than one normally does. You know, is is simply the absence of distraction. You know, once you know what to pay attention to, it is simply the absence of being lost in thought for that moment. May I move to you as as this scientist with with huge faith in, in, in science and, and reading your moral landscape now, what is it, 10 years ago, one could be surprised how, how you 
now uh, talk about meditation and and spirituality. So 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 how how do you how do you combine manage this this very strong belief in in science and 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 here having the spiritual experience? Well, I have a very strong belief in the primacy of of reason in terms of the method by which we form beliefs about the world. I mean, we, we're trying to, it seems to me, develop a map of reality. You know, in, in all of our talking about it, thinking about it, exchanging ideas about it, performing experiments so as to refine our sense of what's going on, that whole project of empirical engagement with the world for the purpose of belief formation and perhaps most important for the purpose of falsifying propositions that in the end we'll we'll no longer believe all of that is trying to develop a better and better map of reality whatever it is and part of that mapping extends to the kinds of experiences that are possible and for me this is the most important part of the mapping. The real situation that we're in is one in which the possibility of experiencing greater and lesser forms of well-being, you know, as, as conscious beings in this, in this world, you know, whatever, in fact, our, our engagement is, is with, with reality itself, there's no question that there's a vast range of pleasant and unpleasant experiences available. And there's also just no question that we want to move away from you know, the, the worst possible states of misery and pain toward something you know, far more pleasurable, beautiful, interesting, creative, etc. So what we have is a navigation problem. And you know, I think science is a necessary part, in fact, probably the most important part of navigating this space intelligently and understanding just what you, what is it that allows for the most number of people uh, most often to avoid states of pointless unhappiness and to find you know better and better ways of living. And part of what makes life worth living is also satisfying intellectual curiosity, right? So there, there is this sort of the purely intellectual satisfaction of curiosity mode in which we do science. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't dispute that, but I do think that on some level, you can't totally step away from the, the utility of all of this. So I do think on some level, the well-being of humanity and beyond. I mean, the well-being of, of any conscious creature is the most important thing, right? It's more important than anything else we're up to. And, any, and anything else we are up to that seems important, seems important when translated into the currency of, of well-being, you know, which in the end is a spiritual concern. I mean, spiritual may need to be in, in scare quotes, given all that people associate with the term. But I think a concern for the well-being of conscious creatures is at bottom what 
it's where ethics and spirituality truly rest, and it does subsume any scientific project in the end for me. I mean, it really is the point of being in this place. There are neurological reasons why paying attention in certain ways constitutes meditation, and paying attention in other ways doesn't. At some level, the explanation for the efficacy of, of any practice in this area is a neurological one, or a neurophysiological one. And so science is the, is the ground truth of any spiritual story in the end, and, and, and that's true at every level. There are right and wrong ways to organize a society so that most of the people can live the freest, most creative, least stressful, least harmful, least paranoid, least agitated lives, right? And we know something about this. We know we don't know everything we want to know about it, but we know that, you know, deciding to decapitate people at halftime at a soccer game, as the Taliban do, isn't the best possible way. And so every human science and almost science from economics on down is relevant to this conversation. I don't see that there's any kind of line between spirituality or ethics rightly understood and and a scientific understanding of what's happening. Yeah, to me, I personally, and I'm a hard-nosed scientist as, as yourself, and yet I have the feeling that when looking at the rainbow, uh, the stars, uh, baby being born, and, and yes, we understand part of the physics and chemistry and biology of these things, but there's so much we ignore at mm. one given point, and, and then we just, I think, shouldn't be too arrogant as a scientist and, and maybe look at these things with more wonder. And, and that, to me, is maybe the, 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 the challenge to, to what, to me, spirituality can be, is to just acknowledge how much we ignore. And, and it's, it's, well, to me, if I understand you correctly, uh, considering that these big questions and you know what what is the meaning of this life and and is this a purely scientific question is wow it's it's having really a lot of faith in science now i think um it's possible to to misunderstand my claim here because i i fully agree that there's much more to understand about the world than we've understood and that that will probably always be the case no matter how much progress we make, there'll be an ocean of ignorance that we're standing at the edge of. But that doesn't mean progress isn't really progress, right? I mean, we, mm -hmm. we do make progress. But I would say to you that the, the, the awe and the humility are always there to be appreciated, no matter how much progress we make, because on some basic level, understanding the world doesn't reach into its fundamental mystery. There's a fundamental mystery of being that persists even in the presence of things that we more or less totally understand. Right? I mean, like, you know, if, if I just pay attention to anything, if I look at, again, the glass of water sitting in front of me on my desk, if I really look at it, I recognize that on some level, I don't know what it is. 
it is fundamentally a mysterious appearance in consciousness. I have a word for it. I can say the word glass. I can recall what I understand about the the structure of, of glass as a you know a generic material in the world, right? I can begin telling myself a story or reiterating a story I've heard about the lattice structure of molecules within glass, but none of that linguistic behavior, you know, whether I do it out loud or I do it covertly in the in my mind, none of that reaches in to the phenomenon, right? The phenomenology is such that all of our concepts are being applied on top of an experience that is irreducibly mysterious. Even in the case where it seems most ordinary and least mysterious, right? So I mean, I, you know, obviously if you take psilocybin, you're confronted with the fireworks of, you know, psychedelic change in the contents of consciousness. So it's easy to see how all of that is is awe-inspiring and mysterious. But even the most mundane experience of just simply looking at a glass of water that I myself remember filling, that perception is on some level as mysterious as anything anyone sees at any point in life. Looking up at the Milky Way, or if you actually connect with consciousness as it is, in an ordinary moment, it is as mysterious as anything ever is. Before we share some recommendations and resources on the topic of meditation, we'd like to extend our heartfelt gratitude to anyone who has enjoyed this series. These clips are a starting place and a sort of introductory roadmap to the vast and still growing Making Sense archive, but we've only just begun to scratch the surface. And of course, all of these topics continue to evolve in the face of new information, new experiences, new technology, and new revelations. One of Sam's most quoted and repeated mantras is something like, I don't want to be wrong for a second longer than I need to be. You never know when encountering the right idea will provide the key to unlocking a perplexing philosophical, political, psychological, or moral mystery, and might just be the thing to improve, overturn, or shift our view of the world and ourselves. We wish you good fortune and good conversation with your efforts to make sense, and we couldn't be happier if this particular archive series helped out in any way. Thank you. And now, here are some recommendations and resources for meditation. The episodes included in this compilation were four, 181, 96, 179, 111, 102, and 227. The books and resources from the included guests are The Man with No Head, The Life and Ideas of Douglas Harding, written by Richard Lang. Being No One by Thomas Metzinger. This is the book that Metzinger joked about being unreadable, but section 8-2 is eminently readable and a nice place to start. The academic paper where he lays out his aforementioned cognitive affordance hypothesis is entitled The Problem of Mental Action. Justin Brewer wrote The Craving Mind, 
and has more recently written a book entitled Unwinding Anxiety, which aims mindfulness meditation at worry and fear. Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence, which was published in 1995, was an international bestseller and hugely impactful in the field of psychology. But his book mentioned in this compilation was Altered Traits, which was co-authored by Richard Davidson. Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright takes a serious and dedicated run at the thesis in the title while making the compelling case for a personal meditation practice. We'll remind you again that Sam has an app that is dedicated to meditation and mindfulness, which shares the name of his book, Waking Up. You'll find all you need to get started with meditation there. As we mentioned, there are dozens of other episodes which could have easily been included. Joseph Goldstein was also the guest for episodes 15 and 63, which include listener questions and much more nuanced exchanges for more experienced meditators. If you're interested in learning more about the retreats that Goldstein runs, you should check out his Insight Meditation Society at dharma.org. Just about all of the episodes that have to do with consciousness naturally give a nod to meditation, such as episode 113 with Anil Seth, in episode 34 with David Chalmers. This compilation didn't focus too much on the relationship between psychedelics and meditation, but episodes 127 with Michael Pollan, 242 with James Fadiman, and episode 68 with Yuval Noah Harari all get into that subject. The Harari conversation also does a nice job planting a flag about the dangers of psychedelic drugs. In fact, That particular subject is so important to Sam that the very first episode in the archive, episode number one, was an essay which Sam wrote and read called Drugs and the Meaning of Life. Annika Harris, Sam's wife, has been teaching mindfulness techniques to children for decades. She developed a set of activity cards along with Susan Kaiser Greenland called Mindful Games, which provide great prompts for kids like practicing eating chocolate chips mindfully, or paying attention to our steps. Richard Lang hosts a YouTube channel with a nice collection of Douglas Harding videos that play around more with the idea of being headless. We should note that Sam has sparred with friends and colleagues about this kind of thing before, with charges of childish death denial coming from people like Douglas Hofstetter and Dan Dennett. You can hear a bit of that story in the introduction of his episode with Lang. Thomas Metzinger delivered a fantastic lecture entitled Spirituality and Intellectual Honesty at the Krishnamurti Educational Center, which is available on YouTube. It would be perfect for any skeptical listener who still thinks this whole subject is a bit too unscientific for their liking. From the cinematic world, we'll recommend two absolute masterpieces by Ron Frick, Baraka from 1992 and Samsara from 2011. These are both described by Frick as guided visual meditations. They're pseudo-documentaries, which consist of stunningly beautiful scenes of natural and man-made locales, absent narration or overt storytelling. The book featuring the first-person sketch by Ernst Mach is called The Analysis of Sensations from 1891. The website headless.org hosts this and many other first-person point-of-view pieces of art, along with experiments and poetry, all inspired by the headless insight. For other pieces of visual art which reference meditation, 
We have to mention the bronze sculpture by Augustine Rodin, the thinker, which is striking the famous fist under chin pose. It's physically housed in the Musée Rodin in Paris, France. Japan is full of Zen rock gardens, which are favored places to meditate. The Ryonji Temple in Kyoto may be the most famous in the world. The type of meditation most associated with these gardens is called Kinhin in the Japanese tradition and is a kind of mindful walking exercise. There are, of course, plenty of interesting places to visit which are relevant to some of the practices that you heard here, such as Borobudur in Java, Indonesia, which was designed in such a way as to emulate a mandala and encourage circumambulation and ascension through the levels of enlightenment. Or, if you're interested in following Sam's footsteps, there are many stupas in Nepal, from Kathmandu to Bhaktapur, where he once honed his meditation skills. From the world of narrative literature, we'll recommend Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse from 1922, which tells the story of a young man on a spiritual quest for enlightenment, as well as Island by Aldous Huxley from 1962, which presents a utopian vision of a fictional island called Pala. There are endless recommendations for music which accompanies meditation, so we won't even dare tread there. But there are some fantastic books from the intellectual and philosophical space which ask why music, such as the track that's playing right now, might be so powerful in putting humans in meditative and contemplative states. Musicophilia, Tales of Music and the Brain by the neurologist Oliver Sacks is one that we like, as is Music and the Mind by Anthony Storr. With a final thank you and hope that you have been enlivened by the ideas in this series, I'll say for the final time, this episode was edited, compiled, and written by Jay Shapiro and read by me, Megan Phelps Roper. <laughs>